confronted by reality and understanding that there are certain illusions that we held going into this, letting go of them is not a bad thing. It allows us to have a different source of grounding. But the question is, when we hit those seasons of, of disillusionment, what do we do? And I would believe that right now, the common response to disillusionment is descending into cynicism. Welcome to the Acton Vault Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. This week, we're bringing you the most recent edition of our Acton Lecture Series from September 9th, 2022, with Peter Greer, president and CEO of Hope International. Around the world, discouragement erodes the vitality of Christian organizations. Visionaries often succumb to cynicism. Zealous advocates give up. Leaders coast as their passion for the cause grows cold. Grounded in deep research, the gift of disillusionment, enduring hope for leaders after idealism fades, invites followers of Jesus to sustain hope in long-term service. It's about moving past the false hope of idealism and the faint hope of disillusionment to discover true Christian hope. You will gain encouragement through the study of the book of Jeremiah, which is woven throughout the gift of disillusionment, as the authors Peter Greer and Chris Horst explore how the Lord prophetically met and sustained Jeremiah during his lifetime of faithfulness, despite nothing going as he had hoped. Glean further inspiration by reading the stories of Christian leaders from Zimbabwe, Haiti, Guatemala, Poland, Palestine, the Philippines, India, Zambia, and Lebanon, For this is the moment when we need the global church's perspective and influence. If you're a Christian leader on the ragged edge of despair, don't give up and don't check out. These are confounding and perilous days, yet God's sustaining presence can bring joy, hope, and encouragement, even amid heartache and disappointment. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash podcast. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Vault is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Well, good afternoon, and thank you for joining us for the September Acton Lecture Series. My name is Dan Churchwell, and I have the pleasure of serving as the Director of Programs and Education here at the Institute. And on behalf of uh, the executives, the staff, and faculty at Acton, we want to thank you for joining us and our benefactors that make these great events possible. Uh, It's our joy to introduce a wonderful speaker today. Um, We do have about a 40-minute lecture, and then we'll have plenty of time for Q&A. So please raise your hand at the end of the lecture. We will have two gentlemen with microphones who are able to pass that so that our online audience, thank you, those of us joining us on the online feed, uh, can hear the questions as well as interact with the talk today. So it is my joy to introduce someone who is not uh, a foreigner to to Acton. He's spoken for us in many venues and many events. Um, an outstanding career, uh, Peter Greer. Peter Greer is the president and CEO of Hope International, a global 
Christ-centered economic development organization serving throughout Africa, Asia, Latin America, and Eastern Europe. Prior to joining HOPE, Peter worked internationally as a microfinance advisor in Cambodia and Zimbabwe and as a managing director uh, of a bank in Rwanda. He received his B.S. in international business from Messiah University and his master's degree in political and economic development from Harvard's Kennedy School. Peter has co-authored over 10 books, including the class, now classic Mission Drift, which was selected for 2015 Book Award winner from Christianity Today, along with Rooting for Rivals, The Spiritual Danger of Doing Good, and Created to Flourish. We've invited him today to speak on his very latest book, The Gift of Disillusionment. And uh, as we went through this book and, and, and asked him to come and had several conversations with him, it really is a, a great book. It takes leadership lessons that go well beyond, uh, deeper than a classic self-help leadership book. And, and it takes a unique angle on leadership, um, of which he's led the organization for over 18 years. The book is full of wonderful anecdotes, as well as true, deep understanding of what it means to lead an organization, the ups and downs of leadership. So thank you for joining us. And on behalf of the Acton Institute, please welcome with me, Peter Greer. Thank you, Dan. And it is always good uh, to be back in Grand Rapids, always good to be with the Acton Institute. And when I think about people that I resonate with, um, it is this group of people um, the way that this group engages deep thought with action in ways that make a positive impact in our world. I just love being here. Uh, but not just that, it also is the people. And even coming in this morning, I, I want you all to know the, the staff behind events like this, I was so impressed. Um, Noah greeting me at the door and welcoming me, making sure I had everything that I need. And then I see Andy carrying uh, lunch things over there and, and then meeting with the tech team. This is a team that serves well. Um, so thank you to the behind the scenes team of Acton, uh, Dan, Noah, and the entire team. So grateful to have this time. Uh, with all of you, and to talk about something that um, has been a journey that I've been on over the last few years. Um, but just one more special thanks, um, Professor A and the Potter's House. I am so glad that you guys are here, um, students taking your lunch uh, to be here with us, and a special uh, welcome, my nephew, the other Peter Greer. Um, great to have you here as well, but thanks to the Potter's House. But this is something that uh, I would say has really been a lifelong journey. This, this topic that we're going to cover today is something that I have been living and experiencing. And, and I guess I wanted to tell a little bit of the backstory um, on this. But when I was in college, I had the opportunity to study in Russia. And I had grown up going on mission trips. I always had this interest in missions. And then I also had this interest in business. And I thought those were two separate uh, pursuits, two separate interests. But while I was in Moscow, I had lunch with an individual who said, hey, Peter, Peter, have you ever heard of the Grameen Bank? Have you ever heard of Muhammad Yunus? And at that time, this was entirely new territory for me. But I was fascinated by this idea of using investment capital to invest in underserved communities, invest in their dreams, invest in their capacity, and then watch what happens. I became fascinated with that. So as you heard, I then started my career. And shortly after, I started in Cambodia, but then ended up moving 
to Rwanda, ended up starting my marriage in Rwanda. I haven't changed much, have I, 25, 20 plus years? But that is Laurel and I, um, and it was a life-changing experience. It was truly life-changing to experience a different culture and to really dive into this, not the theory of microenterprise development, but the practice of it. How can we effectively invest in entrepreneurs? And I was totally hooked. I was completely hooked. Getting to literally spend time with individuals, watch what they would do with small amounts of capital to start or expand small businesses, to provide for their families. And I moved to Rwanda five years after the Rwanda genocide and literally to watch a nation uh, be rebuilt. It was an incredibly formative time of my life. And really, the, uh, we've heard the Chinese proverb, you give a man a fish, someone from Potter's house, what's the rest of it? Eats for a day. Teach a man to fish and he eats for a lifetime. That's it. And so literally having that opportunity. And as I was there, when things couldn't get any better, um, one of the um, artists that I love, Bono from U2, he starts talking about the tools of microenterprise development and microfinance. And he does a twist. Give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day. Give a woman microcredit, she, her husband, her children, and her extended family will eat for a lifetime. While I was uh, there, the United Nations declared a year of microcredit, um, and Kofi Annan started talking about the benefits of this tool. And I um, had this incredible privilege about having a career um, in this space of trying to invest in entrepreneurs and see what it looks like to watch them use their gifts and abilities to work their way out of poverty. That has been my career, and it has been amazing. But... I've also come to realize um, it's, it is hard. <laughs> and, and sometimes we have these moments in life that we have expectations, and then we have our reality that doesn't always align with our expectations. And, and so we can see this in a variety of places. We think it's going to be like, and I don't know, John, when you started the Potter's House, what you thought it was going to be like, and then you jump in. And my guess is there's some twists and turns along the way, some challenges or or you step out and, and join uh, the Acton uh, team and, and you have expectations about what it's going to be like. And then you realize reality is a little bit more complex uh, than that. Um, but I find this misalignment of expectation and reality, I find it to be um, wonderfully presented um, on Pinterest. Uh, does anyone enjoy Pinterest? I do too. I think it's always interesting, but there's a part of Pinterest that I find the most fun, and it's the Pinterest fails. Have you ever seen those? Where you have these ideas about what it's going to look like, and then you say, I'm going to try that, and then it doesn't actually align. Your, your expectation and your reality are misaligned, so you see this beautiful cake, and then you're like, I'm going to try that, and then it like, doesn't quite look like you thought. <laughs> I thought this was a good one. You know, it's this fall, and what a gorgeous day in Grand Rapids. It's time to get the pumpkins. I mean, it's, you feel fall in the air. You see this beautiful image, and you try to put your kid in a pumpkin, and it looks a little bit different uh, on that. Or, you know, the bedtime images. You imagine your kids in perfect harmony, and then it just doesn't quite uh, turn out like you thought uh, on that. But I think for a lot of us that are engaged in service, we have our own images. We have our own expectation and our own reality. 
reality. Growing up, I had this image about what was going to be accomplished on a short-term mission trip, and I did a lot of them as a kid. And then you read When Helping Hurts, and you realize not all good intentions have good results and expectations, what I thought it was going to be like, and then realizing what it actually is like oftentimes are misaligned. Our family has been involved in a foster care journey, and when we started going through the training on the walls of all of the different rooms that we had the training events, there were these beautiful pictures of sunset beaches, of beautiful images, and it was just beautiful bliss. My experience is that they also need some pictures like this alongside that because it has been the single most difficult thing that we have ever done as a family. Um, it has been um, emergency room visits, panic attacks, and I hate that anything we experienced as a family is just a taste of what we know these kids have experienced. Um, our expectation and our reality were mismatched. And and then we know that this is also coming on the heels of a very turbulent few years. My uh, world got turned upside down in 2020 um, as COVID impacted the places that we serve. And not only that, but it also impacted all of us in the way that we work, trying to figure out um, how to do schooling from home, how to figure out when you can't be physically together, how you lead an organization. Um, I had moments that I did lock myself in the bathroom um, and literally did videos for the world if they could only see the backdrop of me standing on a toilet with a, my camera like precariously balanced. It was, it was pivot after pivot, challenge after challenge. And we know that the cumulative toll of the last few years is a level of discouragement and disillusionment for us as a society right now. The stats are bearing this out. One of the stats that we see is that 49% of teachers report a desire to quit or transfer school according to the American Psychological Association. One out of two are thinking, how do I get out? Not just that, but also in pastors. 38% of U.S. pastors, according to Barna, have thought about quitting full-time ministry in the past year. They're saying, this is too hard. This is not what I signed up for. And they're saying, how do I get out? And it's worse in the healthcare field. Report recently said that 90% of nurses are considering leaving the profession in the next year. And again, in my world, uh, watching what happened in the places that we serve, watching 100 million people fall back into extreme poverty in the places that we serve, and thinking about our work in Haiti, um, having the assassination of the president, and then having another earthquake. This is one of our church partners, and literally getting texts and emails about the reality of challenge after challenge, of kidnapping and, and challenge. And then on top of that, uh, our work uh, was founded in Ukraine, and we still have 50 staff members in Ukraine, and watching the invasion, um, watching the impact. Um, if you've heard reports in recent days about the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant, uh, we have staff in very close proximity to that, and the threat of a nuclear meltdown um, has an impact on a nation, has impact on a world, but it has an impact on my friends um, as well. And, um, and just lastly, to round out this wonderfully cheery uh, introduction uh, of that, on top of that, it has felt like we are in a season of being let down by our leaders um, as well. Um, and uh, at the Acton Institute, we heard um, uh, about the rise and fall of Mars Hill. And, and, and again and again and again, it feels like we are hitting challenge after challenge after challenge. And I think back to this, just my own journey, and I think back to where I started. 
I started in a place of, of youthful idealism. And this in, in no way is to diminish the benefit of youthful idealism. We need idealists in our world. We need youthful energy. We need individuals that believe that it's possible to go out and make positive change in our world. But we also have those moments when our idealism is confronted by our reality. And we come to realize that idealism is really a false hope. A false hope that is somehow a guarantee of success. A guarantee that good intentions will result in good impact. Good intentions will result in things going well for our organizations and our family. And that level of idealism does not last. My friend in India, um, John, he wrote this. He said, there are days when it seems everything goes wrong. Um, the song by the Shirelles. Mama told me there would be days like this, right? There are days when it just feels like everything goes wrong. And the journey that starts in idealism almost always leads to a second step. And the second step is a time of disillusionment when our held, deeply held beliefs and expectations are challenged by our circumstances, are challenged by the reality. And again, just thinking about my own journey, it actually started early as I was involved in microenterprise development. Um, while I was away on my honeymoon, came back from that and realized some of my close friends had been involved in uh, stealing money from the organization and realizing, oh, I thought we were aligned in mission. I thought we were aligned in heart. And then realizing there are very real challenges in this work. But is it a bad thing to reach a state of disillusionment? Is it a bad thing? And I like how Barbara Brown Taylor says this. She says, our disillusionment is not a bad thing. Take the word apart and you can begin to hear what it really means. Disillusionment, the loss of illusion, the end of make-believe. Is that a bad thing? What she's really saying is that being confronted by reality and understanding that there are certain illusions that we held going into this, Letting go of them is not a bad thing. It allows us to have a different source of grounding. But the question is, when we hit those seasons of, of disillusionment, what do we do? And I would believe that right now, the common response to disillusionment is descending into cynicism. Every stat that I have read says cynicism is on the rise. Everything that I have read says that cynicism is actually no longer seen as a negative thing. It actually is being celebrated, almost like the mockers are seen as the celebrities in this. Those that are pointing out what is wrong um, in the world. Those individuals that say it can't be done. Wasting our time. People don't change. It doesn't really matter. What God has called us to is impossible. Those individuals that get off the field, get in the stands, and then mock those that are continuing to play. I believe that cynicism is on the rise, and I believe it is a scourge on all organizations. I believe it is having a corroding impact on organizations and on individuals and on future leaders that are seeing and hearing sounds of cynicism and believing that it's just too difficult. So let's join into that chorus. But I think at the root of cynicism, coming back to the idea of, of, of idealism, I believe that George Collin is absolutely right. He said, scratch any cynic and you will find a disappointed idealist. I think that is a profound statement. He said, you dig a little deeper into the cynic. He said, at the root are those individuals that at one time had high ideals. Those individuals that had one time had high hopes. Those individuals that had these beliefs and then the reality of life has worn that away and all that is left is cynicism. So in the midst of this, 
The question that I've been thinking about um, is where is hope in the midst of this? Like, where is hope? And not a hope in this idealism, but where is a grounded hope that actually will hold us when seasons of disappointment come? Is it possible to have a rooted hope? Is it possible to have something that will sustain us even in those seasons of incredible challenge? But I think there's an icon of hope in our culture. Um, and it is a young individual um, with red hair. Annie, I think, is the icon of hope um, in our culture. And what is the promise of Annie? What is the promise? The refrain that she sings. The sun will come out tomorrow. This belief that tomorrow it's going to be okay. And then what did she say? She said, do a wager. I've got so much confidence in my idea of hope. I've got so much confidence. Bet your bottom dollar that the sun is going to come out tomorrow. I have learned that that is a bad place to put your bottom dollar. That is a bad bet uh, on that. Because the reality is sometimes there are seasons of incredible challenge. And guess what comes next? An even more incredible challenge uh, on that. And if your hope is rooted in an idealistic picture of it's just going to be all okay, it's just going to work out, I believe you will eventually succumb to cynicism or opt out completely from a life of service to others. I believe you will opt out if you have a false hope that is based in somehow this belief that it's all going to be okay. And yet I think um, uh, as, as people of faith, oftentimes we do the same thing, don't we? What is the most popular verse in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures? What is the most popular verse? Jeremiah. Jeremiah, Jeremiah what? 29.11. And what does Jeremiah 29.11 say? These beautiful words. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to give you hope in a future. And what do we do with those words? What do we do? We put them on... Sunset beaches. We, we put them on uh, art and, and, and we look. But, but it's so interesting. As we started diving into this idea of what does it take to sustain service, as we started reaching out to our global colleagues and individuals that I've grown to have an enormous respect for, individuals that have decades of service, and they, by all reasonable uh, means, they should have opted out by now. They have faced challenge after challenge. So we talked to individuals in Zimbabwe and Guatemala and Palestine, and we talked to individuals across the world and asked this question of what sustains your hope. And in a surprising way, they kept pointing to Jeremiah. But you know what? They didn't just point to this verse. They pointed to a very different picture of the prophet Jeremiah. And I did not know a whole lot. But these words, when you look at when they were spoken, the context that they were spoken, it gives an entirely different picture on what the prophet Jeremiah is saying. And I believe it has everything to say to us today of how we can sustain our hope even in seasons of drought. So the prophet Jeremiah, when he was about your age, um, students at Potter's House, he, he, was, he was a teenager. And while he was there, uh, a teenager, he had a call, a call on his life. And God says, I appoint you to be a prophet to the nations. Now imagine what that would be like. You just got your job description for life to be a prophet to the nations. What expectations would he have had? I don't know, but my guess is he would have had some expectations about, well, this means, this means God is going to be with me. This means people are going to listen to me. This means I'm going to have this incredible impact on the nation that was falling into a time of decline. 
And yet his reality was anything but that. Uh, he faced death threats. He was thrown into a well, left for dead, a creative way to commit murder while still obeying the letter of the law. He was mocked by his countrymen. He literally was put in stockades in front of the Benjamin Gate, and stockades were designed for humiliation. They were designed so you couldn't even put your head down. You had to look at the individuals that were hurling insults in the most populous place of the city, the city gate. And not just that, uh, he then is imprisoned. And then looking at what happens to him, it is challenge after challenge and challenge after challenge. And not only that, but after 800 years of living in the promised land, he watches, he watches his nation fall to an evil and invasion army of the Babylonians who were ruthless in what they did as they came in. And he is presiding over all of this. And in many ways, you could look at those words from Jeremiah and say, they are mismatched. They are mismatched from his reality. If anyone had an opportunity to give up, it would have been Jeremiah. If anyone had an opportunity to say, this is too hard, I am out, it would have been the prophet Jeremiah. And yet, that's not what he did. Year after year, decade after decade, he faithfully follows the call that God had on his life. And there's one piece that I just want to share that Jeremiah um, shares in Jeremiah chapter 17 that I think is at the root of how Jeremiah was enabled to serve in the midst of drought conditions and I believe has everything to teach us about how we serve in the midst of our droughts as well. But the book of Jeremiah chapter 17 has a story of contrast and it starts out by saying this. It says, this is what the Lord says. Cursed are those who put their strength in mere humans who rely on human strength and turn their hearts away from the Lord. They're like stunted shrubs in the desert with no hope for the future. They will live in the barren wilderness in an uninhabited, salty land. So what's he saying? In those moments of drought, in those moments of challenge, if you think you can engineer your own success, if you think on your own you can grit it out, if you think in your own strength you have enough resilience to sustain a lifetime of service, said that just is an insufficient source. <laughs> Eventually, break off and blow. One translation says that it's like the tumbleweeds. You will break off and blow away if when the challenge comes, you go inward and try to grit it out with just enough strength. But Jeremiah shares a very different approach. Instead of turning inward, he said, what would happen if we actually turned upward. He said this, but blessed are those whose trust is in the Lord and have made the Lord their hope and confidence. They are like trees planted along a riverbank with roots that reach deep into the water. Such trees are not bothered by the heat or worried by long months of drought. Their leaves stay green and they never stop producing fruit. What is he saying? He's saying in those moments, it's going to reveal whether or not your hope is a false idealism or whether there is a hope that has a substantive source that nourishes you even in the most difficult moments, even in those moments of incredible pain. And the image is the same. There's drought that everyone experiences. Drought that every single one, and if you want to step out in a life of service, I'd love to, to, uh, to, to quote uh, Jesus. These words are not as well known as Jeremiah 29, 11, but in this world, you will have trouble. We are told it's going to be difficult. We are told that it's going to be difficult. But even Jesus, he says the same thing that Jeremiah, he says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. What's that saying? Take heart, there's a different story. Take heart, there's a different source. There's a different substance that will nourish you even in those moments of unbelievable challenge that are coming. 
And so I have found that over the last um, a couple years, started working on this book in 2019, little did I know what was in store for all of us. It has felt like the most difficult season that we have ever, ever been. But in the midst of these last several years, my colleague Chris and I, we picked up the phone with intentionality and we said, we want to find individuals that have embodied, as Eugene Peterson writes, the long obedience in the same direction. And these individuals um, were almost like pauses throughout the last few years of listening to their story and saying, what is it that has sustained your service? So Reverend Farai Mutamiri in the top left, he's an individual that stood up against the corrupt government in Zimbabwe. He stood up against Robert Mugabe. And as a result, he paid a heavy price. He was kicked out of his home, um, lost his church, lost everything. He ended up going and having church under a tree. When they were eventually allowed back in their building, they would go to church bringing two things, their Bible and a wet cloth so that when the tear gas was thrown in, they had something to cover their faces as they would leave. That was his reality. And guess what he said? He said, in the midst of this, I preached Jeremiah. I went through that book of someone who understands what it is to be in exile and yet still hold on to hope. He said, that is what sustained our service. Joanne Lyon in the top right, she um, early on in her life, she was married to a pastor and she was completely disillusioned with the church. She was completely disillusioned. She saw what was happening within uh, injustice in our country and she saw that the church was on the sidelines and silent. She then went to Ethiopia and saw what was happening with the family and came back and found a callous and indifferent church. And she said, if that's what the church is, I want out. She begged her husband to find a different profession. She wanted to find a way out. And yet she shares a moment in a hospital room that she was overwhelmed with the Holy Spirit and love for those individuals and allowed her to have the cynicism that she had given into melt with a love for the individuals. And now she has spent her life loving the church that she was so disillusioned with, starting World Hope International and being an advocate for justice and mercy in our world. She did not give in to cynicism. And Edouard in the bottom right in Haiti, as we have had challenge after challenge in Haiti, uh, he is someone who ended up figuring out this is hard work. But he had his hope that was rooted in a different place. And just like Jeremiah, he said, I know God has called me to love my nation and there is no plan B. He has a hope that is rooted in his sense of calling and purpose uh, in his life. And while these are just a few stories, I believe that the world right now is being inundated with bad news. And I believe we as a group, we as a community in Acton, you do this so well. I think we've got to start elevating stories of not what's wrong with the world, but individuals that have figured out how to serve, to turn off the doom scrolling and to turn on conversations with individuals that have sustained a lifetime of service, that gritty perseverance, that rooted hope, and to say, what is it that has sustained your service? That is what I want to be a part of in my life and to elevate those stories. So here's the journey that uh, we heard again and again journey that starts with idealism, but that really is a false hope, leading to disillusionment when hope feels really, really thin, and then that being the pivotal moment. Do we turn inward, give in to cynicism, 
or do we turn upward and find an enduring hope that will allow us to sustain our service? And that is my hope for all of you, that you would find that, that you would experience that, and especially you that are on the earlier side of your life and service, that you would find the gift of a rooted hope that will allow you to serve for a lifetime. So thank you. That is why I believe disillusionment can be a gift. Start with a cynical question. Great talk. Thank you. Um, so when you look at uh, the microfinance world, kind of where you opened up, um, obviously, uh, we've got, I've got a friend in Hungary I was just talking with this week, and their energy prices are going through the moon. And her comment was, you know, now our fear is that since we can't pass all this expense on to customers, because if we do, they'll just go buy it from China, which will save them a small fortune, this kind of path of least resistance. In the microfinance world, how do we kind of uh, help people pivot off that path of least resistance and continue to work with smaller countries and folks that uh, you've done microfinance with? Yeah. That's not a cynical question, Kurt, uh, on that. But, you know, I love your point about the way that the global economy is connected. Um, again, just because we were talking about Haiti, the price of a gallon of gas not long ago uh, surpassed $20 uh, that our staff were paying uh, per gallon um, on that. And anything that has to be imported, um, I mean, everything is more expensive um, in the places that we serve. Um, on that, so uh, it is. It is. It is causing a significant impact around the world. Um, what I have also found, though, is do not underestimate um, the way in which God has wired every single one of us with with creativity. And I've continued to see, even in those situations that seem really, really challenging, if you gather a group of people together um, and you uh, provide access to some, some training and capital and uh, don't try to come in with all the solutions, enable, equip, and listen, uh, it's amazing to see what um, incredible yeah, solutions uh, there are. Um, right now, we have found um, a growing um, attention for us in agriculture. Um, one of the other issues uh, with Ukraine is it has disrupted global markets, and the opportunity there is for more production um, and so we're doing a huge pivot to do a lot more in agriculture and individuals growing as global prices went up. That's an opportunity for farmers, small-scale farmers in the places that we serve. So opportunities are there, um, but I think the huge piece is like hope. Do you actually believe it is possible? Do you have the agency? Do you have the hope to actually say that it's possible to find a solution and still find a way to make an impact? Yeah, thanks, Kurt. Hi, Peter. I um, wonder if you'd <clears throat> comment a little bit on at least what I perceive to be a growing tension for a lot of agencies, a lot of nonprofits, to distance themselves from their Christian, Christian identity, from their faith motive. Um, you, you talked about being involved in microfinance, which has brought a lot of promise, but if it's financial prosperity on its own, it seems like it carries with it also the, the potential lie that Jeremiah is warning against about putting your hope in mere human means. And my work in the nonprofit world, I just, I see a lot of human services organizations that were founded with uh, a Christian background, receiving pressure from funders, receiving pressure from a lot of places to 
distance themselves from their faith. And so how do you, you know, how do you balance that? How do you manage that? Um, it seems related to the cynicism conversation, particularly as it's directed towards the church. No, I so appreciate that. And uh, if you're interested, I'm happy to get you a copy. Uh, Chris and I wrote a book called Mission Drift uh, that is all about how to make sure that we don't lose what matters most um, in that process. And I think you're absolutely right that uh, there was a time that it was possible to um, to kind of be in both spaces, to enjoy some of the benefits of, of having in um, Christian identity, uh, but maybe not... Um, woven into all aspects of practice. And I think increasingly, uh, it is very uh, difficult uh, to try and do that. So I think there's a moment to say, what do we actually believe? What is our theory of change? What do we actually believe? And I think for us as an organization, it's exactly as, as you shared. We believe, as Jesus said, it's possible to gain the whole world and yet lose what matters most. Um, we believe there is more than just financial prosperity. And so that means that we are intentional for us as an organization about sharing the hope of Jesus as we do our work. That is not going to be popular with all circles. Um, it is not going to allow us to receive funding from all sources, but it's who we are. And we would rather be true to that than any sort of a compromise on that that would enable growth. So what does that mean? It means we got to be clear on mission over money. <laughs> we got to be clear on mission over growth potentially. And it doesn't mean we don't still try to find creative ways to tell a story, but it says at the end of the day, what matters most? And are you willing to pay a price for that? Um, and again, for us, um, yeah, it's the core of who we are. Uh, we would rather fold uh, than lose the core of who we are um, as an organization. So there's a lot more that I could share on that, but a lot of times it comes down to what, is, what do you actually believe? Are you clear about that? And then are you intentional in the practices, in the thousand small decisions that you make that either bring you to a place of, of more fidelity to that mission that you have or the slow drift away? Um, yeah, and we think there's too many that are taking the slow drift. We want to be an organization that stays true, um, yeah, to who we are, to our mission. Thanks. Thank you for, uh, for being here. I have a question about uh, how do you represent disillusionment with hope for someone who doesn't have Christ as an anchor of their soul? So they turn inward, they don't have that. Uh, how can How can you present that uh, disillusionment as having hope when you don't oh. have that? Yeah, I guess I would frame it a little bit differently of what an amazing opportunity <laughs> to, to, to point to hope um, and, and the source of that. And uh, look at the alternatives of nihilism. Look, look, look at the alternatives and then say, um, can I share <laughs> what I believe as my source of hope, what has changed my life um, in that. Um, so I would, I, would, I would say, think about it a little bit differently. What a great opportunity uh, to point to a source of hope. And for those that don't have it, I just find um, questions and listening uh, to be wonderful arts of friendship and relationship um, as well. So even if someone is in that place of, of hopelessness, um, Friendship, relationship, listening, um, trying to unpack, understand what is it um, at the source. And the stats, again, of what we're seeing, um, I, I could have included a lot more on this, but, but not only is cynicism on the rise, hopelessness is on the rise. 
and we're seeing the impact of that. And it breaks my heart um, on that. So I guess I would see it as an invitation uh, to say, let's have a real conversation. What is the source of hope? What is the source of meaning and purpose? And is it possible um, that there's something that you're missing that might actually be an incredible gift? Thanks. So I have uh, a quick question. Do you guys operate in America? Because like, maybe I missed that. No, we are only international. There's some other great organizations doing similar work in the U.S., but we are only international. Okay. Well, so in regards to like America and missions in America, who do you find is like the, or what's the biggest impediment to success in America for, for missions and organizations in America? Yeah, so I guess kind of the space that I'm in is the microenterprise development, so job creation. And um, <laughs> maybe it's just because of the topic that we've been having, but, but I actually believe like a loss of hope um, is, is upstream from a whole host of, of other challenges and, and ills. Um, and if you don't have hope that your situation will ever change, if you don't have hope that it's possible to make any sort of a positive impact, um, it is very difficult, very difficult to work your way out of poverty. Esther DeFlo from MIT has some fascinating work about the impact of hope on uh, economics. Um, and if you haven't read any of her work, she got the Nobel Peace Prize a few years ago. But amazing, amazing connection between hope and progress um, as well. So I would say like loss of hope um, is a huge piece of that. Um, and then just again, space that I'm in, I, I think the other kind of challenges um, is uh, I, 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 I've seen uh, what Oye Waddell has done with Hustle Phoenix of coming in with individuals and doing three types of capital. Uh, he does the financial capital. He provides investment capital to those that want to start or expand small businesses. But he also does the social capital. Loneliness is on the rise also in the U.S. And he has the power of community gathering people together. And then the third is the spiritual uh, capital as well, meaning and purpose. Um, so I think about what he's doing. And if you want to see more about that model, Hustle Phoenix is the name of the organization. And I think they're a wonderful example of what it looks like in the U.S. Um, to unleash hope and economic opportunity um, in, uh, in, in some challenging communities. Thanks. My name's Uri, and uh, I want to follow up on Peter's question a little bit. Um, I, just, I, I was late, and I missed probably a third of your lecture, but <clears throat> I'll watch it. <laughs> I'll watch it back. But I was at the VA hospital, and you're talking about disillusionment. And I was sitting with a 92-year-old Jewish man and, uh, who was a Christian, and he had this crisis of faith. And he was totally disillusioned. He said, I'm Jewish, but I'm a Christian. Do I go to heaven? And I looked at him and I simply said, Avi, you think Jesus wasn't Jewish? And, uh, <laughs> and he, he smiled at me and he says, but are you a Christian, Rabbi? And I said, good question. I don't know. And so he looked at me and he says, well, what about your indecision? And I said, God will help me resolve that. But his question actually made me think about disillusionment. 
All right, now the follow-up. I, I run a re-entry in town for prisoners. And it's faith-based, it's non-denominational. But what, what uh, the gentleman over here said is, he's exactly right. Actually, in Grand Rapids, if you are a religious nonprofit, there's over 600 nonprofits in Grand Rapids alone. Okay, huge. If you're in Grand Rapids and you run a religious nonprofit, the chance of you getting funding is really, really low. All right, because most of the corporates do not fund to financial institutions. So, talking about microeconomics and people that can bring uh, money into the system helps everyone. Uh, for example, there are 28 faith-based beds in Grand Rapids. 28. There are none for women. Zero. It's just horrendous. But, uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you, Ray. Thank you for what you're doing. So I'm curious if you've got examples in your sort of international exposure where you've seen uh, the, the business community or individuals who, who are still in the business community and are not positioned within a nonprofit to get engaged to, to facilitate the, the hope in, in, that they have in the kingdom and that they have in the marketplace and uh, examples of where that's been done well and effective and potentially could be reproduced. Yeah, in terms of entrepreneurs making an impact in the places that we serve. Yeah, I would say that is, uh, that is the mission of Hope International uh, on that. So we've served 2.5 million entrepreneurs with capital um, investment or savings. And, um, uh, and I was just in Rwanda a few months ago and had time with some of the entrepreneurs, uh, one whose name was Peter uh, Nyarota, um, and um, just watching the way that he has now 40 rental properties, the way that he is expanding his business, um, and he lost his sight as a boy, um, and he shows that he is every bit as capable as an entrepreneur. Um, and it just, yeah, so I could go on and on and on about the stories, uh, but I do believe in that. My, my, my great joy is meeting and spending time with those types of entrepreneurs, watching what happens when they grow an enterprise and, again, have a heart transformation that says, my benefit is not for me alone. Like, my, my blessing is not for me to hold or to hoard. It is to give and to share. And, ooh, that is a powerful combination. An entrepreneur that knows how to invest, knows how to grow, and then knows how to give. I don't care if it's in the U.S., Grand Rapids, or Burundi, or India. That is a powerful combo uh, for changing a community and a society. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, no, thanks for that clarification. And yes is the short answer, but oftentimes it's not from uh, North American context. Um, so we don't do a lot of sending North American um, business experts to go and train entrepreneurs. 
because we believe there are incredible entrepreneurs in every single uh, country. And so they're staff, they're the example, they're the ones that are going out. And, and success is contagious, right? Everything that we do is a group-based model. So if we're in a group together and there's one that is just a better entrepreneur, just has been able to think, who is the primary beneficiary of that success? Maybe the person's family. Who's the second beneficiary? The other individuals in the group that are seeing if, if he can do it, why can't I? Tell me more what exactly you did and, and, and success uh, replicates. It's almost like the Michael Porter cluster theory on like a micro, micro scale is it's these clusters of entrepreneurs that show what is possible. And that's why everything that we do is really based in a group um, model um, as well. Yeah. Thanks. I'm wondering if you could share uh, any of the institutional governmental hurdles that you've had to uh, deal with. I'm, I'm certain that you can't just drop in into a country and say, here we are. Um, could, could you just share a little bit about the challenges in, in that area, if there are any? If there are any. Uh, <laughs> are you pushing me to the disillusioned or cynical stage? Are you pushing me there? I don't want to go back there. But no, I mean, that's in many places. If you read Paul Collier, The Bottom Billion, I mean, you realize that the poorest uh, countries on earth uh, face um, extra challenges when it comes to government and corruption. Um, and, uh, you know, Jay Richards' book, uh, Mon Money, Greed, and God, um, the, 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 the list that he has at the end of the book of the 10 uh, items, he's been featured here at Acton so many times, but, but I think he's totally spot on on what is required to see a country or community flourish. And getting rid of corruption is one of the big ones. Um, I was, just as a small example, I was leaving a, a, a country airport um, in Sub-Saharan Africa, and um, uh, I was, uh, it was a rural airport, and I was being uh, asked for a bribe in a, not even, um, not even a hidden way, um, and, you know, we went back and forth, and I talked about the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and how we can't do that, and of course, you wouldn't want to hurt your community, um, and he said, okay, fine, 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 um, you just have to pass the health inspection before you can leave. And then he pointed across the room to another desk. Um, and as I'm walking over to the other desk, I see the same guy reach down, put a white lab coat on, put the white lab coat on, and walk over to the health inspection. And we did the same thing again <laughs> on that. And I was like, this is not good for investment uh, to come into your community. And that was just a small glimpse of what day-to-day -day reality was like um, when you see government officials or police and you want to run the other way. I mean, that's not a good environment uh, for investment um, to have. So corruption is a massive, massive one. The other one, if you read Hernando de Soto, The Mystery of Capital, uh, he talks about how long it takes to register a, a business, to register a, a company, and uh, that varies dramatically. Is there, how many barriers to entry are there if you want to be a micro-entrepreneur? And in many places, there is no medium enterprises because it's better to stay under the radar or be so big that you can play the game with the, the politics. And, and yet, if you have a missing middle that does not allow um, um, uh, yeah, a, a country to, to grow or thrive on that. So whether it's regulation, whether it is corruption, I have a lot of stories on that. And what has broken my heart more than anything else is we've had to leave three countries 
because the environment was no longer conducive for us to be able to operate with integrity in that context. And I hate that then that impacts the entrepreneurs that we are there to serve. Um, so that is a reality. And if anything pushes me into the uh, disillusioned or cynical state, uh, that, that's, that's probably where I descend, um, yeah, fastest. Yeah. I missed that. Do we have time for a couple more or are we good? All right, we have a couple more. Yeah, I appreciate the thoughts. Um, not to get political here, but there's an old expression that, uh, well, is it a young person will be a Democrat because they have a heart and an old man will be a, a Republican because he has a head? Um, now, I, I, I say that because it, it speaks to kind of seasons of life and kind of how you go through those stages and disillusionment and stuff. Any thoughts on um, age or of organizations or people related to that? Yeah, no, and you know, every year, um, when June comes, uh, there is a there is a dose of energy that comes into Hope International because that is when the interns arrive. Every year we get between 250 and 400 applicants for 20 spots, um, and all 20 are just amazing individuals serving in the U.S. or around the world. Amazing, amazing individuals. And I think this year in particular, we were, I mean, it's been a challenging few years. And then you have 20 individuals that show up and are like, I can't believe you get paid to do this full time. This is the most amazing thing. And remember my initial enthusiasm about like, this is incredible. Jobs and Jesus in places of poverty, like this is awesome. I can't believe I get to do this. And we need that. And we need the wisdom that has come from <laughs> making sure we're not repeating some of the stakes. So I would say like the best is when we actually intentionally think about teams and organizations that are bringing in a, a wide range. Um, and if all we have are 20-year-olds, we miss out on some of the incredible lessons. And if all we have are those that have been doing this for 40 years, we miss out on the enthusiasm um, and creative thinking of the next generation. So we intentionally think about um, how do we make sure we continue to link those that are entering with those that have been in for a while and make sure both benefit in that equation. Both receive, both give, and it is awesome uh, to see the way that that happens. So yeah, I think Bring, bring, and, and, and I think this is what um, I, I, I just am, am a little bit uh, worried about is if the stats are right, that cynicism is on the rise, um, if people are losing hope earlier in life, I think that is not only harmful for one's soul, I think that is harmful for us as a society. If we start to breed or instill or celebrate cynicism at younger um, stages, I, I, I think we do that to our detriment as a society. So thanks so much, Peter, for your talk and, and walking through all of this with us. Uh, question is, when you're seeing this increase in cynicism and all, and now that microfinance has been uh, a movement that you guys are a big part of, but of many other players, right? There's a big movement that's gone on for now a few decades. Uh, with all of the massive trouble recently, has the whole microfinance movement started to decline through all that? Or is it even still somehow growing despite these massive challenges like COVID and others in the last few years? Yeah, you know, it wasn't 
um, really with COVID, but I think there was something that happened in the uh, 2000s when um, microfinance received a lot of attention. And, you know, Muhammad Yunus, uh, he's featured on The Daily Show. Uh, he was on The Simpsons. I mean, he became like an icon. Microfinance became like cool. Natalie Portman was traveling around the world. And so it really had this time of, of celebrity. And then on top of that, it was seen as an asset class that you could invest in, get high returns. It was not correlated with other parts of the market. And um, so there was a lot of capital that came in looking for returns. And the Compertamos uh, in Mexico had a big IPO and made a lot of money. Um, SKS in India made a lot of money. So there was a lot of money coming in at a time that there was a lot of, of attention. And I do think uh, that there was a blowback on that um, for two reasons. One, they realized, the investors, some investors realized, wait a minute, we are not at all paying attention to the families that we're serving. We are maximizing our return. And there were some suicides from over-indebtedness um, in India. There were some huge challenges that came from, I would call it, like uh, unconscionable uh, capital, <laughs> like just coming in uh, in a way that was not meant to do uh, for the best of the individuals that are receiving it. So there was a bit of an implosion at one point, and I think we're in a far better spot that uh, some of that oversupply has dried up, and uh, now I think it's at a, at a healthier state. The fascinating piece was what happened with COVID. If you look at Hope and all the other organizations, our portfolio at risk, meaning the amount that we have in arrears um, as in terms of the total portfolio, um, it reached levels that we had never, ever, ever seen in our history. Our repayment rate historically is 97 to 98%, um, and we were having a portfolio at risk of, in some countries, over 50%. Um, and it's because the economy shut down, people couldn't work, people couldn't repay. So this is like cataclysmic uh, challenge for us as an organization. And yet, uh, the response, grace periods, um, support, calling entrepreneurs, praying with them, saying, we're here for you. And the uh, result is that uh, we did not see any spike in write-offs. When work was able to happen again, people got back to work. We were able to recapitalize them, and there was not a significant default rate. And I would say that was true across the board with institutions that prioritized people. Um, and there was a different uh, response uh, with some that I think were, 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 had a different approach. Middle of COVID, showing up saying, I need my $2, you know, like that sort of an approach, um, I think actually backfired um, on some organizations. So all that to say, maybe that's too much detail, Mark, but that's, that's kind of where we are, is we are in a healthier spot now um, post-COVID than we were before. And I, I didn't even have a category in my mind to think about that as a possibility. All of our institutions are profitable, except for Ukraine right now because of the war um, and, uh, and, and healthy performance across the board. We have time for one more question. Anything from the, the first few rows here? Any hands? Oh, we have one right here. Um, <clears throat> so for your institutions, how like, did you kind of push through the trying times um, and kind of like growing that hope. Yeah, thanks for that. And again, maybe it was just, I, I've always appreciated the global staff that I get to work alongside, but I was, I was so profoundly 
impacted by my colleagues over the last few years. And the one thing that we heard in some ways was they, they, they live with a level of unpredictability and instability in their day-to-day -day life that I do not. Um, I have far more predictability. And the last few years, everything has felt more uncertain. Everything has felt a little bit less uh, in control. And uh, just listening to our friends from around the world, how they adapt, how they respond, um, it, it made a profound impact. So how do we instill hope around the world? Um, I really believe it's my global colleagues that have a foundation, a rootedness in faith that sustains their service, even in terribly difficult things. And I mentioned Edward, but I could mention John, I could mention Swati, I could mention so many others, individuals that basically are saying, I don't have to be here anymore, but I choose to be here, I choose to serve. And not only are they impacting their community, I think they're impacting myself and, and, uh, and, and a lot of others. So thank you for that. And thank you for the great joy of spending this time together with all of you. If I could do anything to help, um, more than happy to do it. If you want to take a quick test to find out where you are on the journey from idealism to disillusionment to cynicism, you can uh, do that at thegiftofdisillusionment.com and it will give you a number and tell you where you are if you are indeed in a place of hope. But Noah, thank you so much and thanks for allowing me to be here. Thank you so much. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Vault, I'm Eric Cohn.